I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Welcome to a crossover episode of my new podcast with CSIS's Gregory C. Allen called the AI Policy Podcast. And this, of course, is Truth of the Matter. We thought we would post this podcast on both because we have an amazing guest. We have Chris Miller, who's the author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, which is really what the seminal book on this is right now. Chris is an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts, where his research focuses on tech, geopolitics, economics, international affairs, and Russia. Chris, welcome to this crossover podcast. So glad to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. And Greg, this is a great day for us to be doing this because today at CSIS, United States Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo spoke at CSIS. And one of the key things she said was, and I quote, we think our investments in leading edge logic chip manufacturing will put this country on track to produce roughly 20% of the world's leading edge logic chips by the end of the decade. Today, we're at zero. So can I get both of you to react to that statement that she made today? And what does it mean for the United States going forward? Chris, let's start with you. Well, I, I think that matches what the Commerce Department's strategy has been since they launched the CHIPS Act. They've said they wanted two clusters of leading edge logic in the United States. And although they haven't dispersed any of the, the big grants that I think people are expecting, you know, my sense is that their goal is to devote most of the money behind the CHIPS Act to supporting leading edge logic manufacturer. The challenge, as as Secretary Mondo alluded to, is that right now, the two biggest producers of the most advanced ships are, are not in the US. They're in Korea and Taiwan, although both the companies involved are building big new facilities in the United States. And Intel, the third player in that race, is itself dramatically expanding capacity and rapidly trying to catch up its technology. So it's just as good as those other two players. So I, I think the 20% number sounds plausible. It's a long way between now and end of the decade, a lot can change, but at its face, that sounds like a reasonable prediction. Greg, and what about you? You were here today for this. What, what, did, what did you think? Well, we're always delighted to have a cabinet secretary come speak at CSIS. I was a little bit surprised by the 20% number, not because it seems implausible. I agree with Chris. This is achievable if everything goes well, but because there was a number really sort of, to me, sounded like Japanese style industrial policy, where you do actually sort of codify this is what we're aiming for in terms of market share. And so, of course, you know, the, the CHIPS Act was already industrial policy, but now sort of the other trappings of industrial policy are making their way back into the, the U.S. policy ecosystem. And 20%, if I was Korea and Taiwan, in some sense, it would be reassuring to hear that number. Because on the one hand, right, they're currently enjoying 100% market share, so that is going to come at a loss to them. But on the other hand, it also signifies that the U.S. is not hoping to end its incredibly close reliance upon Korea and Taiwan. They're going to remember remain critical players in the ecosystem a decade from now and even beyond. But to both of you, doesn't this mean that we want to be more reliant on ourselves and dominate this market? And, you know, and I think really, you know, we, we hear a lot from the administration about made in America. This is an important priority of this administration. And so far, it seems to be working. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think to their credit, the Commerce Department team has has been pretty clear that 
well, they want more manufacturing of chips in the United States. They're not striving for complete self-sufficiency, which I think is good because- This is not China. You know, it's not China and it's a pipe dream. No one is completely self-sufficient. You're going to import chemicals and machines from the rest of the world. And so I think they're, they're right to say, we're not comfortable with the current extraordinary dependence on a small number of countries, but also we're not trying to undo globalization via one piece of legislation. But is this, you know, we always talk about energy independence and we've achieved that. So is this a similar thing or is it really just not because of what you just said with all the components that we rely on from other countries? Well, it it depends what your definition of energy independence is, but it is true that I think that we export more than we import in terms of energy, but it's also true that if imports were to go to zero tomorrow, the economy would collapse. So, you know, have we actually achieved independence? No. What I think we've achieved and what we're hoping to achieve is increased self-reliance and also increased flexibility, right? When the car crisis happened in automotive chips during the COVID epidemic, you know, the United States sort of discovered just how few few tools it had in the policy toolbox to respond to that crisis. And I think what the CHIPS Act is sort of building is a much more flexible policy toolbox built on top of a much more self-reliant ecosystem. Not self-reliance in terms of like the Chinese targets of 80% or 90%, but self-reliance in terms of there are players in the ecosystem locally that you can go to. If international logistics are complicated, you do have people you can call. So, Chris, I want to go to you for a second. Your book, Chip War, published about a little over a year ago since you published it, maybe a year and a half ago. And it really became the definitive book on the history of semiconductors and geopolitics and the intersection of that. Since then, chips have only become more important. Can you catch us up on what's happened since the book's publication? Are you working on Chip Wars 2? Do you want to spill the beans and let us know? Tell me about that. Well, I think if you look over the last 18 months, there's been a couple of really big changes in the landscape. So first, ChatGPT was released, sparking a boom of investment into AI infrastructure, which means lots and lots of GPU chips. And so now NVIDIA is a company worth $2 trillion, the third most valuable company in the world. That's all brand new due to investment that's happened over just the last 18 months. That's one. Two, the US-China competition in the sphere has ratcheted up to a really unexpected degree via a series of export controls from the US side and responses from the Chinese side, China's threats to withhold exports of chemicals and materials used in chip making. I think the industry has been really surprised by the, the speed at which both countries have tried to intervene in supply chains to, to, to suit their own political interests. And that's a, a, a second thing. And then you map on all the industrial policies at the US and Europe and Japan and India and Korea and Taiwan and other countries are trying to impose, and the industry is changing really rapidly under uh, each of these three different trends. Greg, give me your thoughts on this. Well, I think the past few years have sort of seen the realization of multiple countries' fears and multiple countries' you know sort of ambitions when it comes to semiconductors. You know, on the one hand, we had the the aforementioned COVID-related supply chain crunch of the semiconductor eco- ecosystem. And the, the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce estimated that that experience shaved a full percentage point off of GDP in the United States, which is really big to sort of, you know, when you think about the United States typically only grows one or two or three percent a year for just one of those to disappear because of one industry having a shortage. 
it really woke everyone up to the strategic implications of this technology. And shortly after that, the United States took the export control toolbox that the Trump administration had already been playing around with, mostly on an entity list basis, going after individual Chinese companies or individual persons, and suddenly expanded it to where some provisions, such as the restriction of sales of advanced AI chips or advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment, now apply on a China-wide basis. And that was something that the Chinese government had been anticipating for a long time, that many Chinese companies had been anticipating for a long time, but suddenly it was here. And so all of their preparations, you know, now needed to urgently reach some kind of milestone. We talk about chips all the time now, but, and that's relatively new, even though chips power just about everything we do from, as Secretary Armando said, from our windshield wipers to our washing machines, to our refrigerators, to our, our phones, of course, to our computers. The question I, I think I have for both of you is, is, are we all talking about this more now because AI is on the tip of everyone's tongue? Chris, is that, you know, something that you, that resonates with you? You know, I, I think that's certainly part of it, but it's not the whole story. There are lots of types of products that don't use much at all AI that still have a ton of chips inside of them. You take a new car, on average, it'll have hundreds, if not a thousand semiconductors inside. And, and that's not unique. Uh, all of the goods we rely on have lots and lots of chips. And so even if you set aside AI, the reality is we as a society are going to rely more and more on larger and larger numbers of chips. Yeah, I think this is part of why the reason why Chris's book was so good uh, is that he's a historian and actually a Sovietologist of all things and not a technologist. And so who better to sort of put the semiconductor industry in its proper historical context? You know, Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, wrote a very famous Wall Street Journal op-ed over a decade ago called Software is Eating the World. You know, you could have written the, the op-ed, Semiconductors Have Eaten the World, every decade since basically 1960 and had a very good justification for why that was the decade. It really does seem that there's there's no limits to how critical this technology has been and how even more so it continues to be. What I think is different about the current moment is that geopolitics is suddenly front and center in the story. The companies and even the countries that have been the backbone of the semiconductor industry have been talking in recent decades, you know, about free trade and an interconnected, interdependent system where, you know, basically the more trade, the better. It was in and of itself almost the good that was being pursued. Now we're returning to, you know, a much more Cold War era vision of semiconductors where trade is definitely desirable, but it's often viewed in strategic terms. One of my favorite parts of chip wars was when it was talking about bringing the semiconductors industry to East Asia and in particular Hong Kong. It was originally celebrated and championed by the anti-communist uh, parts of the U.S. foreign policy community who were saying, hey, we've noticed that when you let them starve, peasants often become, you know, communist guerrillas. Maybe we should think about, you know, a jobs program for this part of the world that can bring industrialization, economic growth, and also a tie into the U.S. economic engine. And we're now back in a situation where we view the semiconductor industry, if not principally, then certainly, you know, extremely centrally as a geopolitical, geostrategic story. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, over the past year, the Biden administration has worked extremely hard to prevent our adversaries, Russia, China, 
from using U.S. semiconductors and other advanced technology through export controls and other measures. However, the enforcement of these restrictions has been, you know, by some accounts, a bit leaky. Is this actually working, Chris? Well, I think if you look at the the export controls on on Russia and China, you've got to realize there are two different challenges. So the the export controls in China are laser focused on one type of chip and leave almost every other type of chip totally untouched. And so that's a very focused challenge. And the type of chip in question also happens to be one of the most expensive and also scarce uh, chips in the world today. Whereas for Russia, Russia is putting a ton of pretty simple chips, commodity chips into its missiles. And those chips just, are just, Sorry, Chris, can you just put some numbers on that? Because the, the disparity is like jarring. So there are a trillion chips produced in the world each year of which uh, many different types end up in weapon systems, because just like a car has a thousand chips inside of it, so too does a, a tank on average. And most of the chips in military systems are not super complicated. And so Russia is buying off-the-shelf commercial chips, not that different than what you'd find in your dishwasher, and plugging them in its, in its missile systems and its drones. And so it's not that much of a surprise that we're having trouble cracking down on that trade, because there's literally hundreds of millions of each type of these ships circulating. And they might cost like two bucks. They can cost cost less than a dollar, less than a dollar. And that's that's why the enforcement challenge on Russia is so much harder than the enforcement challenge on China, where we're trying to cut off China from buying a couple types of chips produced by just a handful of companies, and really just a handful of factories produce these chips. So it's much more concentrated. So, So Greg and I have talked about this a lot on our podcast and also before we started the podcast, on this Truth of the Matter podcast, we talked a lot about how, you know, is it actually possible to prevent Russia and China from getting access? What do you think about that? Well, I thought it was pretty interesting. She and Putin spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago and promised after the meeting to continue their close industrial cooperation. You know, the only industry they're really cooperating in is the Russian defense industry. So it doesn't seem to me like there's much interest on the Chinese side in producing that cooperation. And Greg, what are your thoughts? I think different parts of the export control ecosystem have different degrees of feasibility and also have different types of goals. You know, I've I've said before that the United States has export controls that it knows are not having some kind of strategic impact. So, for example, you know, when the Syrian civil war was in full-blown crisis mode, the United States banned the sale of handcuffs to Syrians, you know, Bashar al-Assad, you know, dictatorship. Well, did anybody think that they weren't going to be able to get handcuffs just because America wasn't going to sell them to them? Like, no, it was about sending a signal. Like, we're not going to assist you in repressing your people. It wasn't about the strategic effect. It was about the messaging type effect. Then there are other export controls that we absolutely do want to have a strategic effect. And I think the, the case of what's going on with China in terms of both AI chips and in terms of semiconductor manufacturing equipment, um, there's a lot more feasibility and plausibility of achieving strategic outcomes in that regard. Maybe not the full suite of strategic outcomes on our wish list, but definitely having some degree of strategic impact. So just to to think about these AI chips, these chips can cost north of $40,000 per chip. And the number of companies in China, you know, who are capable of producing hyperscale data centers, your, you know, Baidu's or Alibaba's or Tencent's, it's a relatively short list. 
right? And they need hundreds of thousands of these, you know, chips that cost tens of thousands of dollars. It is definitely true that US export controls on these AI chips are not succeeding at preventing any chips ever from getting into China, right? That goal is not achievable. But can you prevent these hyperscale AI providers from getting the many hundreds of thousands of chips that they want? Yes, I think that is an achievable goal. And certainly you can, you know, delay. When you think about the current AI moment, this is a really critical 24 months in the global AI industry. And it probably matters quite a bit that China is having such a hard time getting enough of the chips that it wants. And then on the semiconductor manufacturing equipment side, there's even more plausibility because a lot of these systems, you know, require constant updates, maintenance. So the manufacturer does not sort of drop them off and then say goodbye for a few years. They probably live in your factory. So Chris, is this what you mean when you talk about de-risking and, and that you think it'll fail? Well, I, th I think de-risking is a, a political slogan that was invented by political leaders that wanted to sound like they were doing something, but didn't want to pay any price. And it's not a coincidence that the, the word first emerged from our European friends who are unsure as to what their policy towards China ought to be. And so it seems to me there's sort of a, a fantasy world of, of reducing risk without paying any cost for doing so. And, and I think the reality is that we're going to be forced to, to choose between one of the other tougher options. And we might as well be honest about the choices that we're making. How can the United States better enforce rules to stop our adversaries from using our chips and other advanced technologies? Well, you know, I think part of the, the challenge is that our export control agencies haven't been resourced to the extent that they, they need to be. Since the Cold War, we hadn't really thought that much about export controls, and uh, understandably so. But since then, we haven't built the tools we need. We haven't invested in the technologies we need. We haven't hired the number of people we need. And as a result, I think the Commerce Department, which has to enforce these rules, is, has faced issues in terms of ramping up their ability to enforce. And I understand why. They're trying to enforce uh, controls all around the world uh, on a new type of technology they haven't really had to deal with in the past. And it's not an easy task. Yeah, Greg's been hollering a lot about this for a long time, including there's a tiny office in, within commerce that Greg, Greg- The Bureau of Industry and Security. Yeah, that's that's the one. And, and Greg had made it his mission to make sure people were educated about what that bureau is, in, is tasked with doing and, and what its actual resources are. Yeah, to uh, to to sort of briefly summarize what we what we've said in, in published CSIS papers, you know, there's there's a whole constituency out there that says export controls don't work, and I would say it's probably more accurate to say that we haven't really run the experiment yet to know whether or not export controls could work, and and the reason for that is think about you know Russia. In this context, they're a member of the Wassenaar Arrangement, which is one of the major multilateral export control initiatives that came after the Cold War. The Wassenaar Arrangement is almost exclusively focused on countering the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, because while the United States and Russia don't agree on a lot of things, we usually do agree that nuclear terrorism is bad. So we've gone from a moment where Russia is helping you to enforce export controls to now, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they're like, incredibly motivated to break the export control regime as viciously as they possibly can. And the resourcing of the before and the after is basically the same at the Bureau of Industry and Security. So your job has gotten like more than 10 times harder, even before you talk about the China side of the equation, and your resourcing has basically stayed flat. 
you know, what do you expect to happen in that kind of environment? And I'm so encouraged that Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo is now talking about this openly, um, describing, you know, what it's going to take for a more muscular uh, export controls in enforcement strategy. And I don't mean to say that everything that's going on with export controls and their shortcomings is a resourcing question. You know, strategy matters a lot here. Licensing approach matters a lot here. But resourcing matters a lot here, too. Going back to the Cold War, we had a, a group called COCOM that brought together the Europeans and the Japanese, and we you know, disagreed at times, but hashed out a common policy and even some common enforcement mechanisms. And right now, we don't really have that. Yeah, sort of COCOM is... Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up. So COCOM was the economic counterpart to NATO. They were born at the same time and they were born out of the same diplomatic discussions. And so basically we've gone from a world during the Cold War where we said, you know, if you would like a U.S. security guarantee, if you would like to be under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, well, we're not going to allow you to sell military relevant technologies to the Soviet Union while we're building a military that's going to protect you from the Soviet Union. Like, if you want one, you have to be a part of the other. In the post-Cold War, those have been totally divorced. You know, there is not an expectation that countries that enjoyed the benefits of a U.S. security guarantee are fully aligned with the United States on export controls. And that just makes the situation much harder. The more multilateral your export controls can be, the greater a shot you have at them succeeding. So, so really, I mean, to what extent does the United States need its allies in this area? It sounds like you guys don't think unilateral action can be effective. I think there are some cases where unilateral action can work, but I'd say your chance of success is much, much higher if you've got your friends on board. And the good news for the U.S. is that in the chip space, all of the major producers of high-end chips and chip-making equipment and chemicals and software, they're basically all U.S. partners or allies. Yeah, I mean, it depends what your, your definition of success is when you're talking about what can unilateral export controls achieve. I think about, for example, the Trump administration export controls upon Huawei, well, that did, you know, kick Huawei out of the 5G phone market, but only for five years, right? Now they're back. And part of the reason they're back is that they've been able to forge new supply chains that don't include the United States for all critical parts. And, and so that sort of gets to what are you trying to achieve on in terms of strategic impacts and over what time frame? You know, unilateral export controls can do a lot in the United States, but those impacts tend to be temporary. If you want something more strategically long-lasting, you really do need it to be multilateral. Okay, so let's talk about the current state of the Chinese semiconductor industry. You, you guys both alluded to it before. What, what kind of investment has China been making in its own semiconductor and advanced manufacturing industries to stay competitive? Greg, you've done a lot of research in this space. Can Let's start with you here. Yeah, so uh, JW Insights, which is a Chinese semiconductor industry consulting firm, they had some data that was recently reported in the Financial Times, and it's a really interesting analysis. They essentially counted up all of the different types of subsidies that Chinese provincial governments are providing. In addition to the Chinese central government, they added the, you know, the investments plus the subsidies plus like the tax rebates, everything. They put it all together in sort of one list. And they came up with a pretty jaw-dropping number, which is that China's government was subsidizing their semiconductor industry to the tune of 65 billion U.S. dollars per year in 2021 and 2022. So that's before the Biden administration export controls took effect. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. Even, even for China, that's an extraordinary number. That is three NASAs per year. 
worth of semiconductor subsidies. The U.S. funds NASA at about $20 billion. So it is a jaw-dropping number. And that's what China believes that they need to spend to achieve their target, right, of 70% or 80% self-sufficiency and freeing themselves from dependence on U.S. technology. So why do they think that they need to be self-sufficient, but we don't think we need to be, and we also think we should have our allies involved? What's what's the difference there? They're just used to going it alone? Well, I I think there is something deep in the DNA of the Chinese leadership that uh, pushes them towards towards self-sufficiency. You've seen it in in any number of industries. That's why as China's economy grows and grows, the, the share of imports doesn't grow uh, because they're trying to build an essentially self-sufficient manufacturing sector. I think the other challenge that they face is that if you look at all the other key advanced economies, they're all essentially competitors or rivals to China. And so there is a geopolitical dynamic behind this, which is that I understand why they're less willing to depend on foreign trading partners if all of their key foreign trading partners happen to have major foreign policy disputes with China. But what that's meant is that, yeah, they've been driving hard towards more self-sufficiency in the chip sector. It's still a long way away, but they're making uh, probably more progress in self-sufficiency than anyone else in the world. Well, let's talk about their progress. In the first two weeks of 2024, Huawei overtook Apple to become the top smartphone selling brand in China, the first time it had done so uh, since being placed on a trade blacklist in 2019. What does this tell us about China and its ability to produce high-end chips domestically? Well, I think one of the aspects of China's industrial policy, in addition to just the massive subsidization, is a focus on what they call dual circulation, which effectively means Chinese providers selling to Chinese customers. And so they think a lot about how to make it so that there's more internal circulation in the economy and less reliance upon foreign customers. The reason why that's important is if you think about the you know the smartphone market, it's like one of the largest smartphone markets in the world. Often it is the largest smartphone market in the world. And so they're thinking about how can they get more access to that? Well, in the software world, China has a very advanced cloud and internet tech giant ecosystem. And part of the reason for that is that they've banned US companies from competing in a lot of those markets. And so as part of this dual circulation strategy, you know, China accuses the United States of refusing to sell to China, but China also has these mechanisms where it tries to persuade Chinese consumers to refuse to buy from America. And one of the more recent moves in this regard actually relates to Apple. Um, The Chinese government effectively told all employees of Chinese state-owned enterprises, don't bring an Apple smartphone to work because we think it is a security risk. Well, you know, for anybody who's been to China in the past five years, they have moved so much to a mobile payments ecosystem. It's really hard to like buy lunch with cash. The only thing that you can pay for anything with is your smartphone. So if you're being told, don't bring your Apple smartphone to work, it's basically like, don't take public transportation, don't buy food, don't do anything unless you have a, you know, a non-US made phone. So they're basically telling you, get a new phone. Well, a lot of Chinese citizens work for state-owned enterprises. It's a lovely subsidy for Huawei, right? To be told that you need to have a a non-US phone. Recently, uh, on a quarterly earnings call, the chief executive of SMIC, China's leading chip maker, predicted a global supply glut in types of semiconductors that his company produces. On the same call, he announced a $7.5 billion increase in capital expenditure. 
what did this announcement mean and why should we care about it? Chris, you've been writing about this recently. What do you think? You know, there's, there's been a lot of focus on the, the cutting edge chip used in AI applications. But if you look at where most of China's building is happening, it's for factories that are going to produce lower end foundational chips, the types of chips that are in dishwashers and cars and other applications. And, and this is where China's got a lot of the technology it needs domestically to produce these types of chips. Not all, but uh, much of it, it, it can produce uh, domestically without too much outside help. And, and that is where we're seeing the largest increase in manufacturing capacity. And most of the private sector estimates suggest China's going to double its capacity to produce these types of chips for the next couple of years, certainly by the end of the decade. And, and that's going to have market impact. It's just impossible for me to imagine that if you have the world's second largest economy dramatically increasing chip production, there won't be dislocations. And so right now, if you talk to policymakers in, in Tokyo or in Brussels or in Washington, there's a lot of focus on what will the, the impact of this new surge of uh, Chinese-made chips mean, both for Western companies, um, but also what are the security implications if we end up relying more and more on Chinese-made chips in our critical infrastructure? Yeah, I think that was a lovely gift to the U.S. trade lawyers who are going to be arguing that China is dumping chips onto the market when you have your leading logic chip supplier say there's an oversupply. And in response to the oversupply, I'm like 10xing my capacity. I do want to lightly disagree with something that Chris said about, you know, SMIC increasing their legacy chip production. You know, SMIC is the most advanced logic chip manufacturer in China. They're the ones who are making the seven nanometer chips on behalf of Huawei for these new 5G smartphones. Well, SMIC has said that all of their new factories are for, you know, 28 nanometer or less advanced, you know, in semiconductors, a higher nanometer number usually means less technologically sophisticated. And in order to get around the export controls, they're claiming they're buying all of this equipment to make legacy nodes. But that has yet to be confirmed. You know, a lot of this equipment could also be put to use uh, for seven nanometers chip. And so, and in fact, other times, SMIC has publicly disclosed that, hey, this is a 28 nanometer facility, but we plan on upgrading it later to be a 14 nanometer facility once that process is, is more mature. And so it could be the case that the United States and Europe and Japan are in this really tough dilemma where we effectively say, hey, you are dumping 28 nanometer capacity onto the market. Dumping is illegal under all these international trade agreements. Therefore, we're going to put up massive tariffs to prevent you from you know, flooding the market and putting all of our companies out of business. Say we erect those walls. Then perhaps China responds and says, okay, if you won't let us sell legacy chips, surprise, we're now retrofitting all of these fabs to be advanced node production. And when we said we were complying with your export controls, you know, it was a lie. We bought that equipment and we're using it for advanced node manufacturing, even though we saw signed a letter swearing that we wouldn't. It's a very plausible scenario, I would argue. So I, I want to close with a, a question to both of you. What are you both looking at over the next couple months that you want to really closely monitor? And what does it mean for the United States? Chris, let's start with you. You know, I, I think the key question, not only in the chip industry, but the entire tech sector is how quickly can companies start monetizing new AI products? We've seen a huge surge of investment on the thesis that there will be a lot of money made in AI. Right now, we've yet to see that materialize in its early stage. So I don't think we should have expected to see that materialize. But this is going to be key is how quickly can companies start making money off AI because the investment will only be sustained if, in fact, it ends up being profitable. That's, I think, crucial for the, the chip industry as well as for the broader tech sector. Greg, I, I see you nodding your head. I think you would agree with that. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got companies like OpenAI that are announcing $2 billion in annual revenue, but you've also got like trillions of dollars in investment. So $2 billion in annual revenue is not enough, right, to justify. There needs to be massive growth. It needs to include companies beyond OpenAI for those sort of expectations to be realized. But I would say I'm still you know, focused on the the geopolitics aspect as well. And I think a lot about, you know, these export controls, are they going to be made more multilateral? Could countries like South Korea, or others who are suppliers of either equipment or equipment components be brought into the fold? Can they address the problem of spare parts still getting through even when the entire completed machines are not getting through? You know, these are all big questions upon which the, the success of the Biden administration strategy really does hinge. Gentlemen, thank you so much for helping put all of this in perspective, these incredibly important issues that all of us in the national security community, the technology community, and the foreign policy community are watching, and the trade community are watching very closely. For those of our audience who, by some miracle, have managed to get through the past couple of years without reading Chip War, uh, let me once again say, you should read Chip War. Uh, it is it is fabulous. It is a real achievement. Uh, I think it was Financial Times' best business book of 2023, and that was a well-deserved uh, award. It's extremely readable. It's extremely informative. And uh, Chris Miller, we're so glad to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a fun conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 